Thanks for tuning in to the Urban Update Podcast brought to you by the Urban School Food Alliance. Today is a special throwback edition from May 2022 at the National Restaurant Association show in Chicago, Illinois. As most of you know, I love surrounding myself with people smarter than me, and even more so, I love introducing the people I surround myself with to each other. In this episode, I have the opportunity to introduce two respective juggernauts to each other. That's Dr. Katie Wilson, Executive Director from the Urban School of Food Alliance, and Brett Thorne, Senior Food and Beverage Editor at Nation's Restaurant News. So we have a special episode of the podcast today. I have two very, very, very interesting people with me. As always, we have Dr. Katie Wilson, Executive Director for Urban School of Food Alliance, and then we have Brett from Nation's Restaurant News. He's one of the editors there, and I'm so excited for the two of you to meet. So I kind of like, I may just sit this one out and just let you guys talk because Katie, you have so much experience coming from school, school districts, working in professional development, USDA undersecretary, you've done a lot. So you're the, the, the child nutrition expert. And then we have Brett on the food, on the restaurant side. So I just want you guys to kind of chit chat and almost educate each other because I think there's a lot of content here to be shared. So uh, Katie, how about you go first? Tell Brett who you are. Okay, thanks. Well, nice to meet you. Nice um, to meet you. Yes, I, I've been in food service my entire life. I was never a babysitter. That just was not part of my life. So um, when I was about 14, I got in the restaurant business and I did everything from fine dining to fast food. To, by the time I was 17, I was running the the boy blue custard stand across from the Milwaukee uh, Public Zoo. So nice. it's been my thing. Um, but then I fell into school nutrition and it has been a passion of mine. I've been in it almost 40 years. And so was a school nutrition director in a small rural district in Wisconsin, um, medium sized suburban district, and then was some larger districts as well, all in Wisconsin. But really my passion was to show people that school food is good food. And there's, there's, there's no reason it has to be anything different. Um, I have a, a history in restaurants. My brother's an executive chef up in a resort in northern Minnesota. I have another br brother that's a sous chef. Um, so food service is kind of in our blood. And uh, so I, I just knew that there had to be a way to show school food in a different light. Um, and so I did. I was in school nutrition. I tried to put our school nutrition programs on the map, so to speak. But part of that was coming to shows like this, where you see innovative ideas. and vendors that don't think of schools as customers. And so they sometimes forget that we are a huge marketplace. So I went on and um, was part of, I was the executive director of the Institute of Child Nutrition, which is USDA's training arm, uh, training school nutrition people nationwide. And then I was appointed as deputy undersecretary for food nutrition and consumer services in the Obama administration. So oversaw all the nutrition programs. Um, and then after consulting for a while, the Urban School Food Alliance, and in school nutrition, we're not in competition with each other. So we know each other really well. And so I knew all these directors of these major districts who had started this organization and was kind of engaged with them, uh, with the organization for a while. And basically they started the organization because they knew they could do better together. Uh, Volume-wise, we're almost to one billion in spend uh, annually. So that can change the marketplace and that can make people sit up and listen. Um, and so in April of 2019, they asked me to be the first executive director and the first paid staff of this 5013C that they had started. And so we went from six of the major districts in the country to now 18 of the major districts. So we serve like 4.2 million meals a day uh, collectively throughout their districts. 
but we're a membership organization. We don't actually do the food service management. They do individually. Um, we're a membership organization for them to do procurement together, to learn best practices, and to do advocacy for school use. So. And that's something that, that I mean, it sounds exactly like what a lot of restaurants do. And of course, schools are part of food service. The idea that it's a different thing is a little weird. Um, because we're all about feeding people. Well, I'm about reporting on feeding people, but but the restaurant industry, it's, it, they, they all go together. Uh, and I've been at Nation's Restaurant News for 23 years. I was uh, hired during the, uh, the beginning of 1999, which if you remember, the economy was so good. I moved to New York after having lived in Thailand for five years. Uh, where I went as an economic refugee because I graduated from college in 1990 during that little recession, which is cute compared to the recessions that we have had since, but at the time it was a bummer. So I uh, ended up getting a job working for a company that serviced guaranteed student loans doing data entry. So I quit and basically put a resume in my backpack and headed to Asia. I'd, I'd spent my junior year of college in China and I did that because I'm telling you my history backwards because that's the way I'm doing it. <laughs> and that's because between high school and college, I went to culinary school in France because I didn't get into the colleges I wanted to go to and I had to reapply. And mom said, well, you've always liked cooking. You took French in high school. Why don't you go to cooking school in France? And I said, good idea, mom. And so that mistake of not applying for any backups for college ended up creating my career because I have a culinary background now. So anyway, I enjoyed the overseas experience. I'd already been to Europe, thought I should go to Asia, and this was the late 80s, so, and the two Asian languages they taught at my university were Chinese and Japanese. Japan was too expensive in the late 80s, so I went to China, ended up being there uh, in 1988, 1989, which means that I was in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square Massacre and actually ended up working for ABC News as just like a guy who spoke Chinese and understood what American networks wanted and did that for a couple of months. So do you speak fluently? I, my Mandarin was pretty good by the time I left. That was 89, so it's been a while. And I spent five years in Thailand after I quit my data entry job and uh, got a job working f uh, for an English language business magazine as an editor, I rewrote stuff that had been translated from Thai into rather rough English and turned it into magazine quality English. But since I was the only one on staff who'd been to culinary school in France, our quite eccentric editor said, why don't you review restaurants? So I, I reviewed Western restaurants. I didn't review Thai restaurants, that would have been pretty arrogant. So I wrote about um, French and Italian restaurants and gradually expanded into some Asian restaurants and some regional Thai things. And that company launched a regional uh, daily newspaper that covered Asia. They wanted to compete with the Asian Wall Street Journal, but they forgot to market it. Because it was, it was like any of those uh, boom economies. We've had a couple of dot-com booms. Here at the National Restaurant Show, we clearly have a plant-based protein boom where, you know, there's just too much. So all of this money was pouring into Thailand and our boss just 
launched a bunch of stuff and didn't really know what he was doing. But I was a copy editor there and had a weekly food column there. And then the economy of Southeast Asia collapsed uh, in 1997, went back to Denver, where I, which is my hometown, and found boring jobs, uh, and ended up moving to New York in early January, when a friend of mine moved from New York home to Maine with five months left on his lease, so I sublet illegally from him for five months, applied to a dozen jobs, got three interviews, two to do financial reporting, one to do food reporting, I got offers at all three, and I took the food reporting one because I'm not dumb. So <laughs> that was when I was hired as assistant food editor at Nation's Restaurant News. And I've stayed for 23 years, and now I'm senior food and beverage editor of Nation's Restaurant News and our sister publication, Restaurant Hospitality. So I've been reporting on this stuff a lot. And, and, and came from a culinary place, but now, obviously, I report on a lot of operations and stuff. and. Uh, your job seems really hard, or any job in school nutrition, because how, how much money is budgeted for a meal for a kid? Eight Hello. cents? Well, yeah, right. You're really close, Brad. You know, they get about $3.72. When it comes down to food, and this is what my one brother is an executive chef, it drives him crazy, because you have about a dollar and a quarter for the food part of that. Um, so it, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Right. And so... We to were, feed the most important people right, on our, in right, our country. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and that, you know, and, and we were talking about just recently about low bid and all the ridiculous regulations, and that's some of the things I'm set out to, to try to change because you can't buy food the same way you buy pencils and paper and desks, and they do. It's all the federal regulation, and then you have state regulation, and then you can have district regulation. And so it's absolutely absurd with how, and for instance, in some of our cities, the municipality controls how things are purchased, including food. We just talked to a superintendent recently where uh, really upset about the supply chain and really upset about nobody answering bids in school nutrition programs, even our large districts where we're serving a million kids a day. And I started talking to him about price point. And okay, what do you do in your bid for a price point for these distributors to do something decent for you or a business deal? And somehow the conversation got off onto pencils. And he said, well, I'm not buying the lowest price pencil anymore because it's such low quality. And I said, but food is still on the lowest price list? Well, yeah, wow. it's just, it can't be that, what's the difference? It can't be that much. They should give, we're feeding kids. And I've always said, well, so is, so are fast food restaurants and chain restaurants, but I don't ask them to go broke doing it. Right. And I don't ask the distributors or the manufacturers to go broke doing it either. So why are we asking them to go broke doing the school nutrition program? I want the same food that they're delivering to my restaurants. I want the same kind of quality and I want my kids to experience good food. But so. you also have a lot more regulations, right? Like the, the nutrition of the food has to be quite specific and fit all sorts of parameters, right? There are lots of regulations, but they're doable. I mean, we've, you know, it's interesting because for a while everybody was doing salad bars in schools. Well, in 1990, I put a salad bar in my small rural school district in, in, in Wisconsin. Salad bars are not new. We've been doing it forever. I have a nutrition background. That was just something I did. Kids in those days were savvy. They were going to buffets all over the place. So they can serve their, themselves on a salad bar. Even kindergarten kids can do that. People were panicking. Why would you do that? Why wouldn't you? They're my customer base, right? So, um, yeah, why, why were they freaked out by that? Oh, the kids are going to take too much. They're going to touch everything. Well, they're going to buffets all the time. And yes, Well, it's also a problem. Well, it is. <laughs> but you know, when we first put salad bars in, it, 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 
spiked a, it, it spiked a little bit, but it came right back down as soon as the novelty was worn off. Plus, we did education things like that. So they're so concerned. The regulations are easy if you do it that way. So the people who were troubled by it were like, "Oh, you're gonna waste food or spend too much money." Not when. It seems like the priority of feeding the children is to feed the children and to have them have a balanced, nutritious diet. And fresh food. Fresh that, that'd food, be great. Like we all do when we go to a restaurant, right? Right. Yeah, but you know, the, the other problem, too, is that there is no K-12 standardized nutrition education in the United States. We're one of the only countries in the free world that does not teach this as a standardized, science-based um, curriculum for kids to understand why they want to eat better. It's really interesting because we'll take something away from kids in schools because of regulation, but we won't explain why. We want to go more plant-based diets. We're trying to encourage more of that, more on your plate is plant-based, but we don't tell kids why. We use a negative term called Meatless Monday. I hate it. Why would you do anything so negative as Meatless Monday? When, and from what I've seen, Meatless Monday, which I get emails about all the time, it hasn't really caught on. Well, no, because first of all, there's a lot of really good food in the plant-based world, as we know here on the show. Right. But you have to, have, you have to, first of all, you have to train. You have to engage kids as to why and what this is all about and encourage them to try. And you have to, I was just talking to Marlon, for a long time in school nutrition, we did menu labeling, where it was more enticing, you know, to eat the carrots and the green beans. But instead with the plant-based, it's all negative. Meatless means I took something away from you, right? And we put a negative spin on meat, which is ridiculous. Right. It's not bad for you. Right. right? Well, so. and, and a lot of the stuff, you know, I have to report on all these plant-based proteins, and I feel like I'm being biased against them just by reporting what it is, because I'm like, yeah, that is a modified pea protein extruded into this shape. Doesn't sound great. And, you know, and, and the, the, the cheese that could be a lovely, wholesome dairy product, is coconut oil and tapioca starch. And it just doesn't sound great. So, and But if you said, okay, here's awesome dairy, or here is delicious almond milk, or, well, I, I kind of want to call it things like almond slurry product, but, but that probably <laughs> wouldn't work that well. But you could call it, I mean, because it's weird when you call something milk when it's not dairy, but you could say, almond drink or almond sunshine think whatever you yeah, want yeah. it's delicious it's good for you and it's positive and it's highlighting the deliciousness of the almonds rather than the fact that it's not milk i mean i was thinking about how meatless monday not so much no. taco tuesday people love taco yeah, tuesday absolutely love it wonderful love it. yes absolutely and there's all sorts of food that could be nutritious right. and i remember hearing a long time ago about how there there's a practice that I'm sure a lot of parents do that if you eat your vegetables then you can have a treat as opposed to whoa you get to have peas eat it. peas are delicious yes. they really are they're You're so good right. Right. why right. why would that right. be a punishment right and if the kid doesn't like peas okay there are other vegetables right. you don't right. have to right. like trap the kid at, at right. the, you can't leave until you eat your peas right. you don't like peas have string beans have carrots have broccoli I understand kids like broccoli because they're like little tiny trees. So yes, and dinosaurs eat them. Uh, oh, they do. Oh, they do. I was I do oh. a lot of work in the UK, and uh -huh. so I was in a school in the UK, and in the UK they serve family style in in England, and um, like and in the schoolroom. Yes, so everybody's they go in into the cafeteria and they sit at a table with all different age kids, and the what we call fifth and sixth graders are the servers, 
So the cooks come in and they put this beautiful food on the table, tell the kids where it's from because they do a lot in carbon footprint in England. Mm -hmm. And then they, the fifth and sixth graders are encouraged to get the kids encouraged to try. That's the other thing different, try something. But in the United States, we're microscopic. If you don't have a, half, a quarter cup, you don't get reimbursement for that meal. I mean, we're doing it the wrong way. So anyway, I'm sitting next to this little guy, he's five, and he doesn't want anything to do with that broccoli. And this little sixth grader who's been trained by the food service staff how to do this, says to him, well, David, you like dinosaurs, right? And of course, he's all over this. And she said, well, do you know that that's green food that they eat? Well, he was eating it to the bottom of the bowl. He, there was nothing more he wasn't gonna eat about broccoli. So it's this mentality, just exactly what you said. We, we have this, this horribleness about vegetables. That's when we went from salad bars to fresh fruit and vegetable bars. Sounds totally different, doesn't it, right? So And delicious. Mm, very delicious. I want to eat that. Right? And a variety of vegetables. When I first started in my small rural school district, they were losing about $40,000 a year. They had like 30% participation. It was terrible. All I did the very first year to increase participation, we had open campus high school. We went to 85% participation in one year. We, I, re, I required them to have three colors on a fresh fruit tray, because we didn't have salad bars at the time. And they had to have three colors of uh, fresh and cooked vegetables for choice, for kids to choose from. And it was all based on colors, because I'll do the nutrition part from behind the scenes, but they can do it by color. And it, it was unbelievable how kids decided that was much better food, because it was so much more eye appealing to look at than just one thing that they didn't have a choice on. So, when I'm, I'm thinking about a story I heard around 15 years ago when McDonald's came out with little sliced apples mm -hmm. with, I think, honey or maple syrup or something and walnuts. And I was talking to somebody in a school district, I think in Texas somewhere. I don't know. It was a long time ago. But, but once that was on the menu at McDonald's, kids were eating all the apples and walnuts that, that could be put in front of them. And so that, so much of it has to do with messaging. And obviously there's a lot of crossover from pop culture, which dinosaurs are, and and fruit and vegetables. Absolutely. And then the marketplace followed because all of a sudden the apple companies were now putting sliced apples in little packets for us to sell at school. Much better way to sell an apple. A little kid with braces can't bite into an apple, right? You don't have time to eat this great big apple. But to rip open that little package and eat those apple slices is very quick. And it's so fun. You yes, get to open a thing. Fun. You have a little present. Yeah. You open yeah. it up. Yeah. I actually, that reminds me of a conversation I had with the Washington Apple Commission around the same time they were coming out with the jazz apple and stuff and they were doing consumer research trying to figure out why people weren't eating more apples. Although I think it's our second most consumed fruit after bananas. We eat so many bananas, it's crazy. But the people they surveyed said that apples were not convenient enough. And they're like, hmm, because you just bite it. Like, how is that not convenient? But that was another reason they started selling the slices. But it's messy, and you have it all over your yeah, hand yeah, now. And there's and a little core. Uh, yeah. like, exactly right. You get right. a little slice, yeah, and then yeah, they love it, yeah. and then you eat a wonderful, nutritious apple. Right, right, right. And you use products from right here in America. So that too. Some of us, some things we well, And do you do you, uh, do much of the local seasonal piece at your Yeah, that's at your very large in schools. Local food is very, farm to school grants are huge. The, the USDA keeps giving more and more money to districts. For instance, this, the state of Michigan, you get 10 cents a meal extra if you meet a certain quota of local produce that you're buying from local farmers. We do webinars for farmers to figure out how to get involved. Um, we're looking at uh, starting a regional 
pilot a regional food system where the food hub is the center of it um, so hmm. that the farmers learn because everybody says the farmer should the farmer should yeah okay but he doesn't know how or, or she right right so we are uh, with the urban food school food alliance we're trying to set up some systems where the where we're actually going to help train some of the farmers how do you get involved so we did a webinar with the city of boston one of our districts and we had 42 farmers on that webinar all they want to know is how do i get to be part of the procurement process and so it, it's really it's booming in the united states um, and some of our districts are up to 35 percent of their uh, purchasing is local my goodness and it's everything from produce to beef to bison fish all kinds of probably things. baked goods too oh yes most definitely bakeries they're engaged with a lot of bakeries i actually did in my small district back to my small real district we had a number of kids that were gluten-free they you know they needed gluten-free and of course in those days, everybody's like, well, too bad, you know, don't <laughs> right. eat bread. Right. Well, instead, we have this wonderful award-winning uh, Linda's Bakery in West Salem, Wisconsin, wins national awards all the time. So I knew them really well because their son and my son were soccer players together, and he was the coach. So I went to Mark Anderson, who owned the bakery, and I said, Mark, there's got to be a marketplace for this, and I've got it. you've got to do this for me. So he actually did, and he went to school, to, to, to back to baking school, to learn more about gluten-free. And they would spray down their restaurant every other Tuesday night, and on Wednesday morning, they would bake only gluten-free. And now, he's like, in, I, I see him now decades later, and he says, Katie, it's literally a regional marketplace for us, um, all gluten-free. But I didn't want that kid that came through the line, we knew who they were. When it was hamburger day, I wanted to grab the correct bun, put the hamburger on that bun, and just give that to that child without identifying them. Um, right. So we had gluten-free everything for those kids. And no matter what it was we were making at school, Linda's Bakery was replicating for us in the bakery. That's and, cool. And it was a wonderful, it's a small town bakery, right? So they had a great new avenue for business. And and it's a new new income stream and a steady, reliable income yes. stream for them. Yes. And the kids don't get ostracized or excluded or made to feel We did everything possible to, they're already ostracized. They can't, they can't participate in school um, classroom parties. You know, kids don't like the food they bring for their treat. They're already ostracized. So we did everything possible in food service to make it happen. And, and cooperating with a small bakery in a small town, it was absolutely phenomenal. And I know that's going on all over the country now. Well, it's interesting that, you know, you, you guys figured out how to get local farmers to, to, I'm sure they have to meet your specs and follow all the, the USDA safety, everything like that. Although I guess it's farmers, they have to do that anyway. but. Restaurants have the same issue, especially the big chains, when they want to uh, get stuff from local farmers. It has to fit their guidelines, and it's it's hard to educate the farmers about what specifically they need. It's easier, of course, in the fine dining restaurant, where also you know they can spend more money. Right. Uh, and even then, you know, the farmers don't necessarily know what the marketplace wants. I was talking to a guy who did, was the PR guy for the Idaho Potato Commission, and they grow a whole bunch of different potatoes, and uh, did I say tomato? Potatoes, oh, okay, potatoes. They grow a whole bunch of different potatoes, and they were separating the different types of potatoes with blue potatoes, because the plants look different, and so they could demarcate where they were, and the PR guy was like, what do you do with the blue potatoes? They said, oh, we, they, we throw them out, and he was just like, People like to have blue potatoes. Why Why are you not doing this? And, you know, they don't know. Yeah, they yeah. never ate a blue potato. Right, right. Just They're just doing it for the color. And that's why we're trying to connect with food hubs, because that's mm -hmm. where small farmers, too, because volume can be problematic for us in these districts. Um, but if they can go to a, 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 a food hub, or even some big distribution houses around the country now do the processing, 
So the farmer takes it to the distribution house. They do their own processing at the distribution house, which is the you know the cleaning and all the stuff that we can't do in schools necessarily. Right. Um, so even the smallest farmer can engage. Um, and so we're trying to really work through this system now to make sure that everybody can play. Well, what can Wonderful. people? What can the listeners do to help you guys move forward and work through that system? Are there things that they can? contribute, donate, where can I find information about you guys? How does that work? Well, that's a great question, Marlon, because we're a 5013C, so yes, uh, Urban, School Food Alliance, Urban School Food Alliance, uh, org, and we have a donate button. We're always looking for donations because we try to enable this, but we, we work strictly on phil philanthropic dollars. And so um, those are the kinds of things that we do. They can also get involved in their community. We also take philanthropic dollars if they want it just to stay in their community. If one of our districts is in their community, we can work with that district alone just to make sure that those dollars stay right there. We've had, for instance, some banks that said, look, we're going to give you a, a grant, but we want to make sure that our money stays in our community. So we did, and then those school districts did PR for them with signs on their, you know, thanks to this bank for doing this and that kind of thing. So we can do it that way as well. But um, I also encourage people to get on our website. We can take, we take comments. So if they have an idea or if they know of a food hub or if it's a farmer that really wants to get engaged, contact us through the website. And we are now just beginning to start really working on this whole entire system. Okay. Well, thank you both so much for sitting down and just getting to know each other. One of my favorite things to do is to introduce my friends to my other friends. And I'm super excited to be able to do that today with the both of you. Um, once again, we are at the National Restaurant Association with Brett Thorne and Dr. Katie Wilson from Urban School Food Lines. Thank you guys. Great, thanks. Thank Alan. you. Thank you for listening to the Urban Update Podcast brought to you by the Urban School Food Alliance, where it's our mission to leverage our collective voice to transform school meals. To learn more about USFA or to donate, please visit urbanschoolfoodalliance.org or email info at urbanschoolfoodalliance.org. Produced by NextGen Network.